All right, so we're going to be in um, chapter 5 of the Didache, page 4. I want to back up to the very last statement of chapter 4, right before we get into chapter 5, and notice that basically he has ended what he called the way of life. This is the way of life. And I just want to remind you that basically when he started this um, um, letter or this document out, he basically told them that for a new Christian, there is a way that leads to life, and there is a way that leads to death. And if we are a born-again Christian, we should be having a desire to walk in the way of life, correct? And so he lays them both out for us and shows us that this is what the way of life looks like, and this is what a born-again Christian looks like, and then this is what the way of death looks like. The first few chapters here have been about the way of life. And just very quickly, I'll give you a quick summary of some of them. But basically, it was about loving the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and strength, and to love thy neighbor as thyself. And then he laid out some things that, that are some um, practical application of what that looks like. And, and basically, he gives us teachings like, for instance, um, abstaining from all evil things and anything that leads to other sins, things like um, anger and um, murder or jealousy and, and leading it to being quarrelsome or hot-tempered. Um, and so he lays out things that we are to be putting off and avoiding and things instead that we should be doing, like being gentle and kind and loving. And then he tells us some of the ways that we should be in the church toward each other. For instance, he says that we should be the kind of people that are seeking out teachers that are teaching the Word of the Lord in truth. We should be resting on their words and we should be um, wanting to hear what they have to say so that we can apply it to our life. And we should also make sure that we're helping each other be peacemakers. You remember that? We should help each other be peacemakers because God is a God of peace. He has called us to peace. And we should be people that not try to um, help people quarrel or help people stay divided, but we should be people that when we know Christian brothers and sisters are struggling with some kind of contention, then we should be the kind of people that come alongside of them with the desire to really try to help them figure out whatever it would take to work through this and come back to a place of good standing with one another. And this is the way that a good church should be operating. Another thing was the way that we behave toward, our, toward the poor especially in our congregation, that we should be people that shouldn't have our hands out to receive from God and then our hands in our pocket when someone else needs to receive. But we should be people that understands that everything we have comes from God and ultimately we are not the ends to His grace. We are a means to the end. We are like conduit um, that wire runs through or electricity runs through or, or water runs through, but this conduit is us that His blessings run through. And yes, we get to benefit from those blessings, but in the end, God blesses us so that we could bless others. And we see that through things like uh, God's call to Abraham. When He told Abraham, He said, I'm going to bless you and then through you all the nations of the world shall be blessed. You catch that? I'm going to bless you, and then through you, 
all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Now we know that he was talking about Jesus Christ in the big picture context of it, but at the same time when he put his law in place, we saw also that he meant for Israelites, the seed of Abraham, to be conduits of his blessings so that as he blesses them, they bless others. And this is what we are called to do as well. And I think that would be important for us to understand in today's society, in today's culture, because that is completely contrary to what the world and to what the culture does. But this is what one behavior that describes somebody that's walking in the way of life, somebody that's loving God and loving others. And then um, he talks about things like the way we should behave toward our children and raising them up in the love of God and authority and the way that we should respond to the authority of God and the way that um, people in authority should respond to those under them and how we reflect God's authority or we reflect submission to God's authority in that. And so he's taught us many things that have to do with the way of life. And so at the end of it, again, at the end of chapter 4, right before we get into chapter 5, he says, this is the way of life. So now we move into the second part that he began at the beginning. Remember, he said there's two ways in the very beginning. One way leads to life. One way leads to death. So now we move into that. We're going to look at the opposite of all the way of life. Now notice what he says in chapter 5. And I'm going to go through this kind of quickly because this is basically just the complete opposite of everything we've been talking about. It is just something that he lays out that these are things that you should be putting off in your life. And the way of life is the way that you should be, is the things that you should be putting on. So the way of death is this. First of all, it's evil and it's what? Accursed. So now think about that. If the way of death is evil and cursed, then the way of life is what? Good and blessed, right? And so that is what you can expect from the way of life, is good and blessing from the way of life. And we'll get into what that means here in just a little bit. But the way of death, first off, it's evil and it's cursed. And now he lays out some of the things that the people in the way of death do. Murderers. That's one kind of people. People that have no love for... They don't love their, their fellow neighbor the way they love their self, right? And they don't love God because God would tell them, don't murder, all right? And so the way of death is first murders. Then next we have adulteries, lust, and fornication. Now one thing that's interesting in this is he's taken us back to the Ten Commandments. I want to say murders. Which commandment is thou shalt not murder? Is it sixth? Uh-huh. Y'all didn't know you was going to have Bible trivia tonight, did you? I think it's the sixth. It may be the seventh. But anyway... Thou shalt not murder is either the sixth or the seventh commandment, all right? And so he's basically laying out here the things in the commandments. Because if you think about it, the commandments can also be broken up into two categories. Commandments one through five could be about loving the Lord thy God with all their heart, soul, and strength, right? Commandments six through ten could be about loving thy neighbor as thyself. And so again, when Jesus was asked by the Pharisee, which is the greatest commandment, he summed them all up 
by saying, here's the greatest. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That comprises the first five commandments. And then the second greatest is just like it. But it is to love your neighbor as yourself. We're basically looking at this second commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself. And the sixth commandment would be don't murder. The seventh commandment would be uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, right? And so he says adultery is a way of death, lust and fornication, and fornication here being that basically sexual immorality is what he's looking at here. But he basically sums them up into the seventh commandment. And then next we have thefts because the eighth commandment is what? Thou shalt not steal. And again, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to do any of these things, right? So that's how it sums up all of it. Then he goes on next and he says, Idolatries, magic arts, witchcrafts. Now some translate this from the Didache as saying uh, sorcery. Some translate it as saying mixing potions. The reason they do that is because, as I've told you many times, this comes from the Greek word. Many times in your English translation it will be translated witchcraft or sorcery, but the original Greek actually says pharmakia. Pharmakia, from which we get our word pharmacy. What does the pharmacy do? And so basically one of the things that they would do that was worshiping other gods is they would mix drugs and they would mix drinks and they would do things so that before you went into the temple of another god or goddess, you would drink this because this is the way you would get into the spirit realm and the spirit world. And so this is what it's talking about. It's talking about not putting yourself in a place of mind so that you no longer worship the Lord your God, but you're off somewhere else and not in control of yourself anymore. And so I would translate this better instead of witchcraft, because even though that is what it was in their context, what we think of today as witchcraft is abracadabra, right? And so, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that's right either because any power other than God's power is not godly. But the point of this is to understand that he's talking about the way of death is the way of sorcery. It's the way of pharmaceuticals that put you in a completely different state of mind. And this is something that he tells us to stay away from. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. That's the reason why he talks about drunkenness. And um, now they didn't know it, I don't believe, as we know it today, like um, narcotics or opioids or whatever the case may be. You know, I believe that. But they, they were finding ways to be able to take plants and various other things and be able to put yourself in a completely different state of mind. Again, this is where we get our word pharmacy from. This is where it comes from. It comes from the Greek pharmakia. And so this is what they were talking about, is they were talking about using whether it be alcohol, drugs, or whatever the case may be, it's all for the purpose of it puts you in a completely different state of mind. They used it in this context, and we know that drunkenness is a sin, right? And so they used it in this context for the point of worshiping other gods. It was idolatry. And so he's encompassing here idolatries, magic arts, and witchcrafts because all of those, in a sense, were worshiping another god. All right? And then he, he puts things like rape, 
false witness, because a false witness now falls under the ninth uh, commandment of thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. All right, False witness, uh, hypocrisy, um, double-heartedness, deceit, or you could say pride here, haughtiness or arrogantly superior is what haughtiness means, depravity, in other words, being morally corrupt. So that's the way of death. Self-will is the way of death. Because if you are self-willed, are you loving your neighbor as yourself? If you are morally corrupt or you are in depravity, are you loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? So all he's doing is laying out specific applications that you can look at and see. If these things are in your life, they are not things that are loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and they are not things that are loving your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, you are not following the way that God would lead you in that leads to life. Keep going with a few more. Again, I'll go through these a little more quickly. Greediness, y'all know what that is. Filthy talking, jealousy, overconfidence, loftiness, boastfulness. Now we move into the kind of people that do these things. Look what he says next. Persecutors of the good. These are people that are walking in the way of death. People that persecute, people that are trying to do good. And you're beginning to see, for most of our life living in the United States, we have not really had to experience persecution, let's be honest. But you're beginning to see this culture take a shift. I'm sorry to say my children are not going to experience the same level of peace in their faith that I have experienced. I truly believe that in order for them to stand on what is good and right, they are likely going to suffer great persecution as a result of this. And it is just my prayer that their faith will be strong, that their faith will be genuine, that no matter what comes their way, they believe what they believe, and they know it to be true. And no matter what they have to suffer, as bad as I hate it, at the end of the day, I know the reward is great. And so, there are going to be people that walk in the way of death that are persecutors of the good. They are people that hate the truth. Do you not see that today? Today, all in our culture, people hate the truth. The truth is not something that's celebrated. The evil is actually what is celebrated. The lies are what is celebrated. People that love a lie is what is next. Not knowing a reward for righteousness. Listen, there is a reward for righteousness. Make no mistake about it. I'm not saying that our motive should just be the reward, but is there anything wrong? God tells us this is the reward for following me. This is the inheritance. Paul said, finally... There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that will not only be for me, but for all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ and look forward to His appearing, right? There were many times that Jesus talked about the reward for following Him, the reward for faith in Him. Uh, I believe Apostle Paul, I believe Apostle Paul was likely the one that wrote the book of Hebrews. We don't know for sure, but whoever it was told us that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. 
And so, yes, there is a reward for righteousness. Uh, Paul in Galatians told us, Do not grow weary in doing good, for we shall reap in due time if we don't faint. Remember what he said? If we don't faint. In other words, if you don't just quit and give up, you will reap in due time. You reap what you sow, correct? If you sow righteousness, you will reap a reward of righteousness. And so this is something that the person that's walking in the way of life, they know this. They know this. Let me give you an example of it. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, start in verse 24. Notice what this says. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now think about this. Do you know what it would have meant to Moses in Egypt to have been called the son of Pharaoh's daughter? He would have had anything he wanted. But notice what he says, he refused it. Now look at verse 25. Choosing, this is a choice he made, right? Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Look at verse 26. Here's the point. He considered the reproach of Christ, what? Greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Is there anything wrong with a Christian in faith looking to the reward of God and saying, it'll be worth it. It's worth it to be mistreated. It's worth it to be persecuted. It's worth it to walk a way of life and refuse the way of evil, even if the way of evil may bring temporary pleasures. It's worth it to deny all of that and follow the Lord because we know, again, going back to the Didache, we know that there is a reward for righteousness. Now again, the problem is the way of death and the people that walk in it, they don't know about the reward of righteousness or they don't believe it. You know how I know? Because if they believed it, they'd choose the way of life. You know how I know that Moses' faith in the reward of God was genuine? Because of what he chose. And the way you're going to know whether or not your faith is genuine in what God promises will be based on what you choose in life. Now again, I'm not saying that, we're not saying Moses didn't have sin because we know he had sin, right? We know Moses was a murderer. That's what we know. But we also know that he repented from that, that he turned away from it. All right, let's keep going. So we, the, the, the people that follow the way of death, they don't know a reward for righteousness. They don't cleave to what is good. What does it mean to cleave to something? Hold on to it. 
Hold on to it. If you know something is good, if you know a way is good, then the way of life holds on to what is good and what we know is good. These people don't do that. And they don't cleave to a righteous judgment, watching not from that which is good, and watching not for that which is good. So they're not looking for the good things in life. The only thing they care about is their own moral compass. As long as they can live with what they do, they don't care if it's right or it's wrong. Alright? So this is the way of death. And then keep going with me. Thank you. <clears throat> but instead of watching for good, they watch for that which is evil, from whom meekness and endurance are far. There's no, there's no gentleness in these kind of people. There's no endurance in these kind of people. It's far away from them. They love vanities. They love pursuing revenge. They have no pity for a poor man. They do not labor for the afflicted. They, they don't know Him who made them. They're murderers of children. Let me say that one more time, just in case there's anybody in here that's pro-choice. Murderers of children. Y'all with me? Destroyers of the handiwork of God. Turning away from Him who is in want. Afflicting Him who is distressed. Advocates of the rich. Lawless judges of the poor. Utter sinners. And then we finally get to our need of this. Be delivered children from what? All these. The way of life is a person that every one of these were probably de definitions of you in some way at one time in your life. But now, by the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been brought into the way of life. And now we cleave to what is good. And now we have a desire to follow what shows that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength and that we love our neighbor as ourselves. And this is the way of life and anything contrary to that is the way of death. Now, chapter 6. Against false teachers and food offered to idols. Let me read through it and then we're going to take it just a little out of time. See that no one causes you to err from this way of the teaching. Since apart from this way of teaching, or apart from the things of God, it would teach you. In other words, be very careful that you're not listening to people that are telling you the way of life is contrary to what this teaching says. Because how many of you know that there are many churches today, many today, that celebrate the way of death? Celebrate it. It breaks my heart to drive through places like Nashville, and it seems like the bigger the city is, the more progressive, or so they say. I don't call it progression, I call it degression is what it is. But it breaks my heart to drive through and see signs on churches in these places. Just go down, go down 21st Avenue to uh, Vanderbilt Hospital one day and pay close attention to the churches and their signs. And you'll see what I'm talking about. 
They celebrate the way of death. And so here the warning to disciples are, are for them to understand that there are teachers out there and there are people out there that will teach you that the way of death God is okay with. So you have to, notice what he says first. What's them first, um, first two words of chapter 6? See that. What does it mean for you to see that? Understand it. Make sure that this does not happen to you. <coughs> Excuse me. So we have to see to it that no one causes you to err from this way of teaching, since apart from God, it would teach you to do so. And can I tell you something? False teachers are nothing new. False teachers are why the majority of the New Testament epistles were written. There's not a New Testament epistle that I can think of that does not deal with false teaching and false teachers. And so it's nothing new. If it was something that the majority of the New Testament was written about, does it not make sense that today it would be even worse? And so this is something we have to make sure that we see to it that no one causes us to err from this way of the teaching, since apart from God it would teach you. For if you are able to bear the entire yoke of the Lord, and here he's just talking about the entire yoke of the law, right? Uh, commandments 1 through 10. If you were able to bear the entire yoke of the Lord, then you will be what? Perfect. But if you are not able to do this, and guess what? <laughs> but the, still the point is, if the law and the Ten Commandments are the way that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength, and we love our neighbor as, our, as ourselves, should there not be a desire in us to do those things? Absolutely. And so here he's saying to us, if you are able to bear the entire yoke of the Lord, then you'll be perfect. But if you're not able to do this, then what? Do what you're able in other words, as much as is possible with you, cling and cleave to what is good, to the things that honor God, to the things that love your neighbor as yourself. Do those things. Now he addresses one that we're going to look at here in a minute and see that it is symbolic. Remember, you've heard me say this many times, so I don't think I have to teach on it again. But there is a symbolic part of the law that we don't follow anymore. And there is a moral part of the law that we are still called to do. Correct? Alright, let me look, let me show you a part of this. Notice what he says next. And concerning food, bear what you're able. Because remember, he's talking about keeping the whole law of God, right? And the law of God had dietary laws in it, correct? Eat this, don't eat this, this is clean, this is unclean. Alright, and notice what he says here. He says, concerning food, bear what you're able. Do what you're able to do. Now, don't, don't lose me here. You're going to understand it before we get done, okay? But against that which is sacrificed to idols, be exceedingly careful, for it is the service of dead gods. Now, we know that food was a major issue in the Old Testament law, right? But in the New Testament, all of a sudden, we're taught 
that all things are clean. It's no longer things that are unclean to clean. So what happened? There are some people that teach today that the dietary laws were about human health. Have you heard that before? That basically the reason why God had dietary laws of clean and unclean is because His concern was for human health. So don't eat bacon and don't eat sausage because of how bad it is for you. Don't eat catfish because it's a bottom feeder and, and, and all this and that. But let me ask you a question. If that's true, then what that would mean is that in the New Testament, all of a sudden, God don't care about human health anymore. So, are you telling me that God cared about human health in the Old Covenant, but He don't, as soon as the New Covenant came, He quit caring about human health? So, as well-meaning as their teaching is, it don't add up. It doesn't make sense. And so, no, the dietary laws were not about human health. Now, does that mean that, that a pig is not necessarily unhealthy and a deer healthy? No, we know that's true. There are, way, there are things about pigs that are unhealthy and there are things about deer, that venison, that are very healthy. But that's not the point because you can make the same argument from other animals in the opposite way of clean and unclean. So the point here is this. It's not about human health. But here's what we can, we can know. It was about symbolism. Just like every other thing in the Old Testament law, the sacrificial system, uh, the priest, just like every other thing in the Old Testament was about symbolism and about shadows of the good things to come, so was the dietary law. So here's what we know. <clears throat> Animals symbolically represented human beings. Now let me show you an example of that. Somebody go to uh, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 24 through 28. <clears throat> and God said... Let the earth bring forth what? Living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. <clears throat> I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong place, ain't I? Alright, here I am. And let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth, according to their kinds. And it was so... And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to, to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Alright, and now keep going. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and all over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, 
and fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now go with me to Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from what? From the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became what? A living creature. So here's the first thing that I want you to notice of the similarities between animals and mankind. First off, animals and mankind were both made from the ground. All right, let the earth bring forth. From the, from the earth, God made man. The next thing I want you to notice is that they were both called living creatures. Nothing else in the world is called living creatures. Then I also want you to notice that mankind was made in the image of God and he was to have dominion, authority over all of these things in the same way that God has dominion and authority over man and all creation. So we have this symbolism going here. Man made in the image of God, and then we have animals made in the image, if you will, of human beings, and in the image and under the dominion of man. Now again, don't let me lose you, because I know I'm sketchy right now, but just stay with me. Now I want you to be able to look at uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 21. Let's look at another similarity. Genesis 1, 21 through 22. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the water swarms according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them. Who's He talking about here? The living creatures, right? The animals, the birds. And notice what He says to them. Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, there was morning, and the fifth day. Alright, now look with me at Genesis 1, 27 and 28 again. So God created man in His image, in the image of God He created them. Male and female He created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, what? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens. So here we... We have this symbolic imagery here, alright? Now keep going with me. Let's also look, if you would, at... Um, go with me to Leviticus chapter 11. Because I want you to be able to see that here's what I believe God did. And other scholars here, I, I, I think, I know, agree with me, or I agree with them, let me say that. What I believe God did when He made animals clean and unclean, He created a grouping system that showed the same way that human beings would be. There would be some that were clean, and there would be some that were unclean. Alright? And so now He creates a symbolic dietary law in the Old Testament that represents (coughs) the clean of human beings and the unclean of human beings, but it's a picture of it in the animal world. Let me show you. Leviticus chapter 11. Let's start in um, let's start in verse um, let's start in verse 1. That's a good place to start, right? 
And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, and here he's just talking about animals that have a, a hoof that splits, right? So whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, and whatever chews the cud among the animals, you may eat these. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these, the camel. Why, God? Because it chews the cud, but it does not part the hoof. So it's unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, it is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, but it does not chew the cud, it is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. So here's what we see in this. It depends on their footwear and their eating habits on every one of them, right? Now here's one thing that I learned. A cloven, I, I just searched and asked the question, why is a cloved or a cloven-footed animal, why is it better than one that's not? And all kind of answers come back. But one answer that stood out to me was that was always the same answer because of their stability, their balance. Any, any, sure, any um, split-hooved animal has much better balance and has much better stability than anybody else, than any other animal that does not. An animal that chews the cud. The cud is something that comes up from, it's not been completely digested, it's only been through, I think like a cow, they say they have four parts in their stomach, right? And so there's part of it that comes down, but before it's been digested and goes through all of it, there's some of it that comes back and they chew on it again. They chew it up some more. And, they, and, it's, and I take this as kind of like probably symbolic toward um, somebody that just continuously meditates and continuously chews on whatever it is that they have. It's a symbolic of what a clean animal looks like. One that is stable. One that is sure-footed in their ways. One that is continuously meditating and is continuously chewing on what it is that they are receiving. It doesn't just come in and just go straight through. Alright, and then keep going with me. Look at Leviticus verse 11, um, chapter 11, verse 9 because we're going to look at the next, sea animals. Let's see what makes a sea animal clean or unclean. So he says, These you may eat of all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters, it is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall, you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. So here's what we learn in that. What made a fish, either clean or unclean, is their skin, their outer armor. Did they have protection? Did they have something that was more than just their, their skin? 
And so again, I'm seeing symbolic here of what this is talking about. And then notice the point of it. Look down in Leviticus chapter 11. Go all the way down with me to verse 46 and 47. Because here's the point of it all. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground. And notice here's the point of it in verse 47. The main point of it all. To make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. And so here's the thing. The law was only given to those who could obey it perfectly. And if they could obey it perfectly, then they had the opportunity to be considered clean. Right? Remember, if the Israelites had followed the covenant of the law, they would have been a clean people. Right? But instead, they didn't and they became unclean. And just in the same way that there are so many parts of the law that are symbolic and they point towards something else, mainly Jesus and what Jesus is going to do, Jesus comes in the picture in the New Covenant and He gives the opportunity for all to be clean. In the law, all you had was the opportunity for Israel and the people that follow the law to a T. Every jot every, what is it, tittle, every iota, if you can do that, then you will be clean. If you don't, you are unclean. Jesus comes and He now makes no distinction to the point that if anyone trusts in Jesus, then you will all be clean. Now this is something that the apostles even had to grow in their understanding of. In the beginning... Even Peter, after Christ died, he still had a problem with the dietary law. Let me give you an example of it. Go with me to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now think about what's fixing to happen here. God is showing Peter that animals in the way that he understood it, are no longer clean and unclean. Why? Because the law is no more. 
Now we are under grace. Alright, now notice how he relates it here in verse 17. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. And he called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one that you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, or a Roman, an upright and a God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Now why did God have to show Peter the vision of things not being clean and unclean to his understanding before he goes to Cornelius' house? Cornelius is a Gentile. Peter has to understand that clean and unclean represented those that were true to God according to law and not, but now clean and unclean no longer represents that. Alright, so keep reading with me. <clears throat> then he says, <clears throat> verse um, 23, So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he arose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanying him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea, and Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Why? Because any one of another nation wasn't clean, they were what? You see what I'm saying? The animal system was symbolic to clean people and unclean people because animals were symbolic of human beings, clean and unclean. God only separated them to show and to make a distinction. You remember what He said in Leviticus? to make a distinction between clean and unclean. It was to show them that there indeed were clean and unclean. The only way to be clean in the Old Covenant? Follow this law. Now that we're in the New Covenant, who can be clean? Anybody can be clean. And it's not just following the law, or it's not following the law, it is following the Lord Jesus Christ. So now, in verse 28, he says, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person, what? Common or unclean. How did God show Peter that he should not call any person common or unclean? By showing him a vision of what? Clean and unclean animals. Peter said, I can't do that. I've never done that. Yeah, but Peter, that was pointing to what was coming. Now that we are no longer under that, now anybody can be clean. And this is the reason why. Go with me to Colossians chapter 2. I got so much more I need to share with y'all about this, but 
Am I given enough evidence that you at least see the gist of it? All right. I wished I had so much more time, but I don't. So Colossians chapter 2, and look with me at verses 20 through 23. Or first off, let's start in verse uh, 16. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of what? Food or drink. Why? Well, notice what he says. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. But remember, these are things that are of the law, right? The law was to keep the Sabbath holy, honor it. The law was to keep the feast. The law was the... The, to uh, don't eat this, but eat this. Alright? So don't let no one pass judgment on you. Why? Verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going into the detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now here's the focus in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not take. In other words, you're not under the law anymore. So why are you still trying to submit to these symbolic things of don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings that have an indeed an appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion. Here's the point. We don't keep the Sabbath anymore because Jesus is our Sabbath. Right? He is our rest. And because Jesus is our rest, we come and we celebrate that we're living in the Sabbath every day. Because we're no longer working for our salvation. Just the same way God entered His rest, we have also entered into God's rest through the Lord Jesus Christ. When He said, it is finished, He meant it is finished. And so the symbolic part of that law, we don't keep anymore. The dietary laws we don't keep anymore. Why? Because now God has shown us that we don't call nothing clean or unclean, that anything is able to be clean because of the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. And you can look at the, the feast. We don't keep the Passover anymore. Why? Because Jesus is our Passover lamb. Right? Here, again, here's the point of it all is that, yes, in these early Christians, even Peter, they're trying to figure out what parts of the law do we still keep and what parts of the law do we not. And I want you to know that as they learned it, what he's telling them here is whatever part you're able to keep and whatever part you, your conscience knows that you need to keep, then you keep that part of the law. You remember in Romans chapter 14, and I'll quit with this. Romans chapter 14. Whenever he was talking about some people know that it's okay to eat whatever, whatever is set before them. 
Some people are not there yet. And for the ones that are weak in their faith and have not grown to that point, what should you do? Is it because it's wrong? No, it's because in their conscience, conscience matters. And so our conscience is our moral compass that we gain as we are raised up in life, and everybody has one, but our job as believers is to bring our conscience into line with God's ways. And as we're learning that, we're practicing according to what we believe and what we know is right and wrong. And it's important that we're following that moral compass that we've been given and that we're always bringing that into alignment with God's ways. And that's exactly what happened to Peter, right? Jesus is already resurrected and He's gone to be with the Father, but Peter's still not eating pigs. But after this, Peter got to taste bacon for the first time. And I bet he never looked back. <laughs> but again, the, the main point is this, is that when the Didache is teaching you that, he's teaching young Christians to follow their conscience. When it comes to food and the dietary laws, whatever it is that you believe that you are supposed to continue to do, then you just keep doing that. But one day, that conscience is going to be brought into alignment with what God has actually done. And when that happens, and when you have that understanding then God help me. I wish I had 15 more minutes. <laughs> Any of y'all understand that you've matured in your faith and you've learned things that you always thought may have been wrong or things that you may have thought wasn't wrong? And then somewhere down the line, that conscience has, brought, has been brought into alignment with God's ways. And it's important, and this is what the Didache is trying to teach, that for a new believer... As much as is possible with you, follow the law of God. Follow it. But as you learn and as you see the things that Christ has fulfilled and we no longer keep, but we still continue to keep the moral part of the law, but as you learn these symbolic things, the good thing about us is we're not Jews, so we never had to learn that bacon was bad. So we've just been raised on it. But that's the point behind it, okay? Did I confuse anybody? Does everybody understand why we don't have the dietary laws today? And it has nothing to do with human health, right? right. Praise Jesus. <laughs> so it, it, it was symbolic. And it was symbolic of unclean and clean human beings. And today, because of Jesus Christ, we call no man common or unclean because they are all able to be clean through the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right. Sunday morning, we, in our lesson, we talk about be ye perfect as the Father is in heaven. Yeah. That's right. You're exactly right. And, and that's, that's the reason I'm saying the importance of conscience. And, at, and as we grow, we, we act according to faith and what we know God has taught us and what we know is right and what we know is wrong. And so that is something that is always growing and always being brought into alignment by the Holy Spirit.